over there, we're going to review a little bit about our Baptist distinctives. And before Brother Josh puts it up there, let's see if you can remember where we are up to this point. We have this one and one more, so we're, we're most of the way through it, but our acrostic starts with B. So what is B? Biblical authority. A, autonomy. P, priest of the believer. T, two ordinances, and they are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I, individual soul liberty. You're getting weaker. <laughs> S, very good, safe church membership, which brings us to the T tonight. And so I want to look at this, and you'll probably figure it out pretty early on what, what they are. It actually starts with two, all right, the, the, word, the, the number two, uh, and see if you can figure out what these are. But let's look at Philippians chapter 1, and this is a jumping off point. We've got a lot of other verses, and in fact, probably some other better passages for what we're going to talk about. But this is a, this is a great starting off point, I think, tonight in verse number 1, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our text here, we're seeing Paul divide the church into three basic groups. You have the saints, you have the bishops, and you have the deacons. And I don't for one minute believe that, that he was setting up the bishops and deacons as higher than the saints. I don't, I don't think Paul was trying to do that at all. He was just simply differentiating them for the sake of emphasis and putting emphasis on those two scriptural positions or those two scriptural offices in leadership in the local church. And we find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Verse number 10, and let these also first be proved, and then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. So certainly there's a lot more positions in the church that, that uh, God uses for us to be able to serve him uh, in the local church, but there are only two God-given scriptural positions that are associated directly with the local church, and that is the pastors and the deacons. And so regarding the spiritual oversight of the local churches, there are, those are the only two that are mentioned in the New Testament, uh, and the New Testament gives very clear qualifications for both. It gives very clear duties for both of those. So we're going to talk about those um, tonight, and actually we're going to move that into next week as well. But that is the seventh in the acrostic, and that is two offices, and that is pastor and deacons. So we're going to look at those uh, both of those, and I want to focus, first of all, with the deacons. Now, we're getting close to the point of actually appointing deacons in our church, so I want to take a little bit more time with this. I may take a little bit more time, even more time a little bit later. There's a whole lot of things that we find in the Bible that we're just not going to have time to get to, even if I only focus on the deacons tonight, which is what I'm going to do. But it's a very important position. It's a very important responsibility I want to make sure that we understand what it is, how important it is to hold that position, what that position is, and everything else. So uh, I think by, by way of introduction, um, I started thinking about this. You know, if, if, you could, if you could pick one person in history that you would like to go back and just spend a few hours with, who would it be? It would be George Washington or, you know, Thomas Jefferson or Stonewall Jackson or Robert E. Lee or one of those guys. Uh, I don't, I don't know who it would be. If I could only pick one, I don't know who it would be. Um, but then you start thinking about, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the great preachers of the past. And, and two that come to mind are D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon, probably two of the most well-known preachers 
uh, of modern times anyway, semi-modern times. Both of them uh, really shook America and England for the cause of Jesus Christ, and they were semi-contemporaries. But think about that even then, if you could spend a day with the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And of course, I don't know, as much as he got whipped and beat and shipwrecked and everything else, uh, maybe a couple hours with Paul would be all we could handle. But, you know, or, or even to be there when Peter preached one of his sermons. You know, I mean, to be there on the day that Peter preached the, the, the sermon at Pentecost. Could you imagine what that would be like? But there are seven men that I think someday I, I would really want to meet because these men gave themselves for the furtherance of the gospel, even though they didn't necessarily um, have the position of pastor or, you know, they didn't, uh, quote unquote, shake the world for Christ like some of these other men that we, that we mentioned. But their ministry was a ministry of service. And their ministry was to further the ministry of the apostles. And their names were Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, according to Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. We're going to have a quiz over that at the end, so you better memorize those names. I'm kidding, we won't. But pastors desperately need men like those seven men. Men who were full of faith in the Holy Ghost, as the Bible says. So turn over to Acts chapter 6. That's where that's actually listed. The, the, the names of all of those men are listed there in Acts chapter 6. And that's kind of where we're going to spend most of our time tonight. I, I will jump around back and forth a little bit um, and have you turn to some other different passages as well. But when any church is diligently fulfilling their purpose, it's not going to be long before problems arise. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the church that we have uh, relatively speaking, we have not had problems in our church. And I know that at, at some point they're probably going to come, and uh, I don't know what form they're going to take or how they're going to show up, but uh, the Lord's really blessed us with uh, uh, really a, for the moment, and I say there, there's always things that, that, that pop up and things that have to be dealt with and whatever else, but for the most part, uh, our church has really been problem-free, and I'm so thankful for that. But uh, any church that's, that's diligently fulfilling the Great Commission is going to run into problems. And, and, and we find that in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. Uh, that's exactly what happened in the Jerusalem church. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their whiz, widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And, and I think the tendency um, is to see problems as a sign that the church is, is, is flailing or the church is defunct or the church is going under. And problems can certainly indicate that there needs to be adjustments. Uh, when there are problems in a church, things need to be adjusted to, to, to get rid of those problems. And, to, and I'm not saying, you know, that people need to be kicked out, but I'm saying things need to, something needs to change because you can't keep the problems there like that, right? So, uh, but notice that the problems in the Jerusalem church arose when the number of disciples was multiplied. It was the growth of the church. It was, not, it was not the insufficiency of the church. It was the growth of the church that made a solution necessary. So problems in a church generally fall under one of five categories. Number one, you have legitimate concerns. There are times, so sometimes it's a legitimate question that's necessary to help the church go forward. Right? I, I think that's exactly what you find there in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 1. Right? The widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. That's not an, you know, that, that's a legitimate concern. Somebody needs to take care of this. And so uh, that's a legitimate concern. That's, that's one of the ways that problems arise. Another way is preferential concerns. Color of the carpet, what the inside of the church looks like, you know, what the color of the chairs are, or, you know, 
where we're going to locate the classrooms and all those kind of things. And those are not, those are not problems uh, for, for spiritually mature Christians because, you know, I, I think for, for the most part they realize that uh, th- those are non-essential to accomplishing the mission of the church, right? And uh, a Christian who is, who is mature in his faith and mature as a Christian is going to say, I don't like it, I think it's ugly, but it doesn't hinder the, the, uh, the church going forward, willing to give deference to other people where it helps the church move forward in that purpose. But that's a preferential concern. Then you have carnal concerns, and, and those would be brought up by carnal Christians who have ulterior motives, a hurtful spirit in a lot of cases, um, only concerned about themselves, and, and we find that. I'm not, I'm not just saying that, you know, uh, obviously I've seen that by example, um, in, mostly in other churches, but you see it all the way throughout the Bible. In fact, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. While you're turning over there for the sake of time, I'll read you another one. In 3 John 9, John says this, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So he's trying to give them instruction in diatrophies because he liked to, to have this prominent spot and, and didn't want to show humility and whatever else. He wouldn't, even, he wouldn't even let the letter be read. He wouldn't even let them come. That's a problem. That's a carnal Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. What do you think he's talking about with profane and vain babblings? Right? People who are just run their mouths, essentially. I mean, I'm not trying to, to, to downplay it, but for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. He, he called them up by name, right? He said, hey, these, these two guys, and the way that they're just vain babblings and, and uh, 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 profane babblings, he said, that, that's like a, a cancer that's running through the church. Get rid of them. Shun them. That's, that's not helpful to the growth of the church. And I think the damage by a carnal issue usually arises from an unbridled tongue. Boy, we, we find that in James chapter 3, it's, and I'm not going to take, you know, to, to read it for the sake of time. But boy, an unbridled tongue can do a whole lot of damage. It, it spreads throughout the church, and a lot of people are hurt by it. But then turn over to Acts chapter 20, because I think uh, a, another way that problems arise, and, and I would say that this is probably the most common, and that is satanic attacks. Right? Any church that's moving forward for the cause of Christ Paul describes them as grievous wolves, right? It's, it's false doctrines. It's sabotaging the advancement of the cause of Christ. And boy, that's, uh, we're, we're going to get into the, the, um, the office of the pastor next week, but that, that's the responsibility of the pastor is to, is to search out the, the grievous wolves, find out what they are, figure out what those doctrines are, and then get them out before they do any damage in the church. But we find this in Acts chapter 20, verse number 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so it was, it was in that context that we find Acts chapter 6 being written. Um, and it, it was in the context of a, of a legitimate concern that would otherwise have hindered the growth of the Jerusalem church, that the office of the deacon was instituted there in the church. And, and when that problem was solved by the appointment of the deacons, the result was, was God-honoring. And you see that in verse number 7 of Acts chapter 6. And I, I know I'm having you jump around a lot, but if you go back to Acts chapter 6, we'll be there for at least a little bit. 
But Acts chapter 6 and verse number 7, the Bible says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Well, that was, that was indirect, uh, a direct result of the appointment of those seven men, those seven deacons there in the church. Because the first verse of that chapter, you see the problem. The, the next few verses, you see the appointment of those deacons and kind of a, uh, a description of those deacons. And then you see a, a great solution to the problem. And it was very God-honoring because of that. So let's talk about the office of the deacon. Any pastor can tell you that there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done in a church. Uh, and it's too much work to be done by one person. But when a pastor is called to a church, he is called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we'll talk again a little bit more about this next week, but Ephesians chapter 4 makes that very plain. That's the job of the pastor, is to, is to give the church the tools that they need to help the church move forward. Um, the, that responsibility is primarily accomplished through the preaching of God's Word. That is my main job in shepherding the flock that God got here in this church. But there are so many things that have to be done on a day-to-day -day basis in the ministry that if a pastor has no help, it, it's impossible for that to be accomplished by one person. And honestly, if he doesn't have help, then he's going to be neglecting his greatest duty, and that is making sure that he's spiritually prepared to preach the messages and study and pray Spend time alone with God. And I can attest to that fact, especially in a small church like ours. There's, there's the same amount of work has to be done as in a large church. It's just on a smaller scale. You still are doing everything that you would do for your Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all your ministries in between. It's just that in a smaller church, you don't have as many people that are involved in those ministries. And essentially, you don't have as many people that are able to help out with those ministries. So really, in a smaller church, the, the work is even more but what ends up happening is that those things, those important things, can end up getting pushed to the side, and the time is not spent on them that, that, that needs to be spent when it comes to study and preparation and prayer and, and personal time with God and all of those things because of the amount of work. And that's why it's crucial to have men appointed from the congregation to help in the daily administration of the church's affairs. Now, what we find here in Acts chapter 6 that the Bible word for deacon is, is mostly translated as servant. Or a definition of that word could be one selected by the people and charged with the temporal affairs of the local congregation. In other words, the, the primary role of a, of, a, of a deacon in a Baptist church is to serve the pastor and the church. And we have no better example of, of ultimate servanthood than what we see exemplified by Jesus Christ all the way throughout the New Testament. And we're not going to take the time to go through those passages, but Jesus did that over and over and over and over. And I think probably the greatest example is when he washed the feet of the disciples. Right? What, a, what a tremendous example of servanthood Jesus uh, showed us, but we see him meeting everyday needs of people, from providing food to healing to of money to friendship and hope and encouragement. And what we find here in Acts chapter 3 and verse number 5, it's uh, uh, Acts chapter 6, I'm sorry, verse number 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Verse number 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So, let me, let me point out a few characteristics of these men, because I think this is, this is important. We don't really have 
We have a couple passages, and we're going to look at those passages tonight, but there's not. The New Testament is not filled with talk about deacons, right? Uh, so we only have a few passages that we can look to as guidance for what a deacon ought to be, what the characteristics ought to be, what the qualifications ought to be. But we find a great list of, of qualifications for the, uh, the characteristic, not qualifications as much as characteristics of these men. But number one, they had a godly influence. Look what he says there in, in, in verse number three. Three, look ye among you. Look ye out among you. The men already had exerted a godly influence on the people in the church, right? Uh, before they were given a position of leadership in the church, they had a godly influence. They were already busy. They were already doing things. That's, that's, that's what I believe it means when, it, when uh, it says, look ye out among you. They had a godly influence, but also they had godly relationships. He says, among you. Right? We're not going outside the church and hiring deacons to come in and, and you know, pay, pay them in a position or something like that. It, it's, it should be from amongst ourselves. They had the ability to relate. They had the ability to get along with one another. Uh, and that means not only was their relationship with the Lord right, that, that, that vertical relationship, but the horizontal relationship was right as well. They, they, they were chosen by, essentially, by their peers. They had a good reputation. Uh, and that's the third thing, is they had a godly reputation because it says uh, men of honest report. They were men of integrity. They were men of honor. And they were full of godly wisdom. They had a servant's heart. That's the fifth thing that we see about them. Their initial job was to serve widows, which is not, you know, it's not a glamorous job, but they were chosen for their willingness to serve, right? And, and in a church the size of the church at Jerusalem, and I, I don't know exactly how big it was, but I know it was, a, it was quite a large church. And it was, I mean, they were sending out missionaries. They, they were kind of the hub, if you will, of Christianity in that day. It was a large church, and so they probably had a lot of widows, especially when you consider the fact that, that persecution uh, was really hitting that church hard. It's one of the things that made them spread out. So you probably had a lot of, their, a lot of the men that were being killed. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, not, you're, you're talking about the, you know, the, the Roman emperors who were well-known for killing the Christians. I mean, even look at, even look at Paul. Before he became Paul, he was Saul, and he was on his road to Damascus to take these Christians and put them in jail and kill them if he could, right? They stoned Stephen. So there's a good possibility that there was a good number of these widows that were in that church. And, you know, serving the widows is, is, is even though it's a rewarding job, it's not a glamorous job. It's not, you're not the one that's out there that everybody's seeing, that everybody's watching and everybody's looking at, but they were willing to do it because they had that servant's heart. And then I think we see this also, they were men of faith. And uh, no better example of that than Stephen, but it says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost. And, and because the pastor is the overseer of the church, the men who serve him have to have faith to follow their pastor, right? It's my responsibility to make sure that, we are, that this church is going in the direction that I believe God wants me to lead this church in. I, I have to make sure that I'm right with God enough that, that I know what his heart is for our church. But then the men that God gives to follow and support and help the pastor have to have faith that the pastor knows what God wants and they can get behind that. Some Christians seem to have the mindset that a qualification of the deacon is to stand up to the pastor, right? And, and, and that's, you know, I, I hear about that happening often in churches the deacon board rose up and they kicked the pastor out. That's not, the, that's not what a deacon board is designed to do at all. That's, that's, that's the exact opposite of what God designed the deacons to do in the church. 
When the pastor sets the vision for the church that he believes the Lord has laid on his heart, rather than quibbling over whether it's right or wrong, uh, we should, and, and quibbling over whether or not we should move forward, their responsibility is to say, okay, this is the vision, this is where we're going, how can we accomplish that? That's what the, that's what the responsibility of the deacons is. We only have the life of one of the deacons mentioned whose, whose biography is really expanded upon, uh, and that's Stephen. His life modeled the characteristics of a godly deacon. And we find that, actually, we, we already read, you have a little sentence about him there in, in uh, verse number 5, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. But then you also have more about him in verse number 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now, I want you to remember this. Stephen is not an apostle. Stephen is not a pastor. Stephen is not, you know, one of the leaders in the church as far as, you know, Barnabas or Titus or any of those guys. He was a deacon. He was a layman in the church. And this is what it said about him. Verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, lying about him. But they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfast on, steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So what are the characteristics? Well, number one, pretty obvious, he was full of faith. And, and it says that about him twice. It says that in verse 5, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. It says that about him in verse 8, full of faith and power. More than being a deacon who is good with finances or who is good with business or, or has some other specialty, I think one of the greatest characteristics of a deacon is that he's a man that's full of faith. And we find that about Stephen. It doesn't say anything about what Stephen did for a job. It didn't say anything about his occupation or anything. You know that he was because he was not, not full-time employed by the church. He was not you know, living off of the, the, the generosity of other Christians. He was, a, he was a man in that church. But twice in just a little space about Stephen, it says that he was a man full of faith. We also see that he was a man full of power. He was full of power because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And deacons who are fully yielded to the Lord and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit can open the floodgates of God's power to bless their church, to, to impact the world through the church. What a, what a tremendous asset to have a deacon that is full of faith and full of power because he's filled with the Holy Ghost. But also we see that Stephen was filled with the Word of God. And that's evidenced by the powerful message that he preached uh, Acts chapter 7. I mean, look at that entire chapter. And you see how it's 60 verses, uh, the last verse, the last couple verses we find is the story of them stoning Stephen. Of course, they laid their coats at the feet of a man by the name of Saul, and he was consenting unto his death, right? But Stephen is preaching a message in front of all these people, as basically as, as his last words. He's, he's on trial, essentially, to, to prove whether or not he blasphemed against the, the temple and against God and against all those other things. But Stephen was so full of the word of God that he preached this powerful message. And you read through Acts chapter 7, and obviously it's long enough, we're not going to take the time to do it. But he knew the word of God. 
I don't know if your Bible has something like this in it or not. Mine has uh, any, any, any uh, quotes from the Old Testament are listed in small capital letters. And if you look through this passage, maybe yours has little side notes on it or something like that that'll mention it. My uh, Acts chapter 7 is filled with verses that have all these tiny little quote, uh, capital letters all the way through it. Stephen was quoting over and over and over and over from the Old Testament. He knew the word of God. But also, he displayed the presence of Christ. As he stood there, of course, he faced tremendous opposition. Here, Stephen is just standing for the truth, obviously. But he had grace under pressure. But as he died, he didn't show hate. He didn't show anger. He didn't show horror. Here's what we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 15 about him. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Could you imagine that? I don't know what that looks like. I don't, I don't know what they saw. I mean, I don't know if his face was, was glowing or, you know, or if it was just this peace on his face that they didn't recognize from, from any, anything else that they'd ever seen. I don't know what it was, but I know this. He had grace. He had grace when he was getting ready to be stoned to death, and he displayed the presence of Christ. Which brings us then to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn over there, if you will, because this gives us the qualifications of a deacon, and the qualifications for a deacon are almost as stringent as the qualifications for pastors. And that, to me, reflects the importance of this office and the great responsibility that is entrusted to somebody who holds the office of a deacon. But we find this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 8, and I'm going to go through these uh, one at a time fairly quickly, but I want to read all of it um, uh, all at once. We find this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 8. Likewise, and when it's saying likewise, it's because in the earlier part of that chapter, it gives the qualifications for the pastor. But in verse number eight, it says, likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things, let the deacon be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So let's step back and look at verse number eight, and let's talk about some of these qualifications. Number one, the Bible says that he must be grave. That means he must be serious. He must be sober-minded, as the Bible uses that term. In Acts chapter six and verse three, it said that it should be men of honest report. Right? And I think that goes along the same lines. It means that they're honored for their character. They should be men who, who are serious and, and they're going to inspire respect. Right? Grave men can be joyful men, but they're not going to be silly. They're not going to be flippant. They're not going to be uh, known as a jokester, so to speak. And, you know, nothing wrong with a deacon who's funny or, or somebody who has that, that temperament or whatever else, but. Grave means that, that they have that respect of people around them, right? I mean, how many times have you, have you said, oh, he's just a goofball, right? I mean, that, that's the way that you describe it. Most of the time, it's, you know, guys that you grew up with, and you're talking about them in, in high school or college or something like He was a goofball. That, that's not what you want your deacon to have a reputation for being. A deacon ought to be grave, and that's what that means. The second thing we see is that he should not be double-tongued, right? The Indians use the term forked tongue like a snake, right? Speaking out of both sides of your mouth, uh, it means that they shouldn't be deceitful. They shouldn't be hypocritical. 
speaking one thing, meaning another thing, or, or saying one thing and doing another thing. But they should be men who can be relied on for the exact, the exact truth of what they say and for the exact fulfillment of their promises. And I think double-tongued also implies gossiping or backbiting or undermining or holding grudges. And those, those things greatly hinder the work of God, and they disqualify a man from being a deacon. Because a man that's a deacon ought not to be double-tongued. Another one, the third thing we see there is not given to much wine. Certainly not a drunkard, but the best way to, to keep that from happening is to follow the commands of the Bible that we find in all the rest of it and not touch it in the first place, right? Proverbs says that, that you shouldn't even look at it when it's moving itself in the cup, right? Uh, so uh, certainly a qualification for a deacon. Uh, number four is not greedy of filthy lucre, which very simply means you're not motivated by money, right? If you ask people what's the root of all evil, what are they going to say? Money. No, money's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? Just because you're wealthy or just because you have money doesn't mean that you're sinning, right? Somebody who is poor, who makes almost nothing, could also have the love of money the same way who somebody who's a multimillionaire could have the love of money, right? It doesn't say money is the root of all evil, which is what most people say. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, right? And the Bible makes that very clear that a deacon ought not to be greedy of filthy lucre. Greed twists the mind. It hinders sound judgment. And, and I think also a deacon that's controlled by the love of money is, is going to be prohibiting himself from being available to serve, right? If, if all you're concerned about is how can I get the next dollar in my pocket, then all you're going to be doing is working overtime. You're going to be missing church to, to go make that money, and you're not going to be available to serve the way that a deacon needs to be available to serve. Which brings us then to number five as a qualification, that's holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Well, what does that mean? Holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. Well, the word faith, as it's used here, is the same as the word gospel. It means that deacons are also supposed to actively be involved in spreading the message of the gospel, right? He's not a preacher, but his influence and his example would be a great, can be very great. And a man who, who held material error ought not to be in that office of a deacon. It also means that he's going to have a clear grasp on biblical truths. He's going to be able to consistently pass those truths on to other people, right? And it doesn't even necessarily mean that the guy has to be a great teacher or a great speaker or any of those kind of things. But he has to be able to, he has to know what he believes is really what it comes down to. And um, have a clear grasp on those things. And I, and I think that means he's going to be a student of the Bible, and he's also going to be a teacher of the Bible, right? New Christians come along, and they need somebody to help disciple them. A deacon ought to be able to take somebody through everything that he needs to know as the first steps for new Christians, because number one, he ought to be doing those himself, but number two, he ought to have a, a, a good enough grasp on what it means to be a Christian and what it means to have a good walk with Christ to be able to take somebody through those things. And the pure conscience means that he's supposed to be free from the blood of all men, but also to be a moral example to the others in the church, right? What does free from the blood of all men mean? It means every opportunity I get, I'm telling somebody about Jesus Christ. I don't want to have somebody's blood on my hands. They die without Jesus Christ and spend an eternity in hell because I had an opportunity to tell them and I didn't. Their blood is on my hands. And I think that's what he's talking about when it means holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. I can stand before God and say, I told everybody that I had an opportunity to tell. But then that brings us then to number six, which means that he needs to be proved. It says, and let these also first be proved 
then let them use the office of a deacon, right? Well, that means they need to be tested. They need to be examined. They need to be scrutinized to show that he can do the work of a deacon. The, the office of a deacon should not be treated as a position of discipleship, right? Somebody who is a new Christian does not get put into the position of being a deacon so he can learn how to be a better Christian. Well, if we make him a deacon, then that's going to put pressure on him, and hopefully he'll grow in his, in his faith. Hopefully he'll grow as a Christian. That's not the purpose of making somebody a deacon. The requirements for a deacon should already be established in a man's life before he's appointed to that office. Because uh, I think to appoint a, a, a baby Christian to, to that position of leadership is detrimental to, the, to that Christian's growth, but it's also a, a, it's depriving the church of the leadership that it needs. Which then is, uh, the next one is that he should be blameless. I think Samuel was a great example of this. As, uh, Samuel was a judge in Israel, and as the ministry of his judgeship was coming to an end, he got up in front of the entire congregation of Israel, and he, he asked them if I've defrauded any man. And nobody, I mean, it doesn't say that anybody spoke up, but it sure doesn't sound like anybody spoke up. But why, if Samuel knew that he had defrauded this person and that person and he had you know, all these other things that, that people were like, oh, I don't know about that, right? He wouldn't have got up and said, hey, if I've defrauded anybody, tell me, right? He, he could do that because he was blameless. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to be perfect, but he's got a reputation that nobody would think of blaming him for blank. And there's a lot of people in our churches and honestly in positions of the deacon who you could say, man, that guy rips people off every time he turns around. He owns his own business and he's constantly ripping people off, right? That, that's not, I mean, that disqualifies a man from being a deacon because then he's not blameless anymore. Uh, there should not be one person in the church who can accurately accuse a deacon of a dishonest transaction. And the same is true for the pastor. Right? That's one of the qualifications for a pastor, which we'll look at as well. But the lifestyle of a deacon and his family should be sterling. He should be pointing the people in the church uh, and others to Christ and adding to that positive testimony of the church and the community. Right? Oh, you find out that this guy just rips people off left and right in his business, and now they find out that he's a deacon at such and such church. Well, what does that do for the testimony of that church? Destroys it. That's the kind of guy they're putting in as a deacon at that church? Remind me to never go there, right? And that's, that's what I'm saying. The testimony of the church many times hinges, of course it hinges on the members of the church, but it also hinges on the deacons, and, and it, it rests even more on them. So the deacon and his family should represent everything that the church stands for inside and out. That, that, that is, that is uh, I think, key to what a deacon does. A deacon stands for everything that the church is. Which then brings us to another point, and, and honestly uh, is, I would say, seems to be kind of stringent, but it is. Verse number 11 says, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So not only must the deacon have all these qualifications, but there's qualifications for the deacon's wife. And, and I think they're, you know, they have to meet the same qualifications as their husbands up to that point. Grave means they, they ought to be serious and they ought to be respected. Again, doesn't mean they can't have fun, doesn't mean they can't joke around, but they, they need to be respected, not slanderers, which means they're not, not false accusers, they're not loose with their tongues, right? Uh, especially somebody in that position is going to hear things um, and know things maybe about people in the church, and boy, if you've got a, a deacon's wife who is, uh, who's got a loose tongue, 
that can do some serious damage in the church. And that's, I think that's why the Bible makes that point to say that, that, the, that the deacon's wife should be not a slander sober, right? They take that as a serious responsibility. And then, just in case we miss something in there, faithful in all things. That's, that, we'll, we'll cover everything else and say faithful in all things. But I think it's important. Church leadership, in a lot of ways, opens a man's home to scrutiny, right? Uh, without saying it, you're watching my kids. You're watching my wife. You're watching my home, right? And you're not up there saying, Pastor, I'm watching your kids. You better make sure you got them right. But I know you're watching them, and you should be, right? Because my family ought to be an example. And I know that puts a lot of maybe undue pressure on my kids, but it puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure that my house is in order, because how, how can I get up and tell you to make sure your house is in order if mine's not, right? But, the, but that's the same qualification for the deacon and, and the deacon's family, too. The very fact that he's being considered for leadership is a statement that he's worthy of being an example to other people. So doesn't mean he's perfect, doesn't mean he's better than everybody else, the same way that it doesn't mean I'm perfect, and it doesn't mean that I'm better than anybody else. But that means I'm held to a higher standard, and so is the deacon. So it's absolutely necessary that his wife share the same godly testimony, share the same heart for service as her husband does. Is that, is that harsh on the wife? Maybe. And there's probably some husbands who would be great deacons whose wives disqualify them from being a deacon. But it's, it's, not, it's a position that is very, very serious. And that's what I said at the very beginning. It's an important position of leadership, and it all has to, it all has to work together. Which brings us then to the next one. He takes a second there and stops to talk about the wives. But then he says, let the deacons, verse number 12, be the husband of one wife. Right? Well, that doesn't mean one wife at a time. It means the husband of one wife. That wording here literally refers to a one-woman man. So it means that he's married, first of all, uh, but to only one woman. And so obviously that prohibits uh, somebody who's in a polygamous relationship or somebody that's been divorced from holding that office. But it also refers to the purity of the man's life at the time. He should, and, and obviously there's a lot of secret things that men have in their lives that obviously if people knew about it, they probably wouldn't do it, I suppose. But, uh, you know, it's, it, you know the, the purity of that man's life is important, right? He shouldn't be having an affair. He shouldn't be involved in pornography. He shouldn't be involved in, you know, um, emotional affairs with other women. He, sh he's, he belongs to his wife, and that's it. And, and if it ever comes out that he is involved in any of those things, that's, that's cause for immediate disqualification. Same thing with a pastor, right? Find out that I'm having an affair with some woman somewhere, I, sh I should be kicked out tomorrow, right? Because it's, that's, a, that's a qualification. So he must be completely committed to his wife and live in that personal purity. And some, some question the ability of a man to serve because he's been divorced. And um, for many, that, that happened before they were saved. And I've known some very good men, some very qualified men in every other area whose past life of being divorced um, kept them from holding the office of a deacon. But they jumped in, they were tremendously useful to God in a lot of other areas. In a lot of cases, they did the same thing that a deacon would do. Um, but, but this requirement, being the same as it is for a pastor, you wouldn't have a pastor who had been divorced, right? You found out that I had been married before, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask me, and, and obviously I was here when we started, so if you ever do call a pastor, if for some reason I die or resign or who knows what happens and you have to call a pastor again, that's one of the qualifications for a pastor. He, he shouldn't be divorced, right? 
Um, because again, there's, there, it's, it's, such a, it's such an important office, but it, it shows the importance and the gravity of holding that position of a deacon as well. Doesn't mean that a man can't serve God. Doesn't mean that a, a man can't be extremely useful in God's service. Doesn't mean that, a man, that, that he can't hold other positions in the church. Um, but he can't hold the office of a deacon. Which brings us then to number 10, and really the last one that we find here in, in this list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But it says that, uh, let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. And again, another one, and, and we're kind of covering some of these things that we're, that we're going to be double, double for next week, so we're not going to uh, take as much time next week to talk about these things, but kids should be behaved. They should be under control, right? Um, uh, that's children that are obedient. Kids, kids are going to make mistakes. They don't have to be perfect, uh, but they should not be rebellious. They should be manageable. Deacon, a deacon should be a spiritual leader in his own home before he tries to be any kind of spiritual leader in the church. And, I mean, it's, it, it just seems like a logical thing, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. But, you know, uh, if, if you can't rule your own house well, then how can you rule the house of God is, is what the requirement for a pastor is. But it's, it's, it's so important in that way as well. His, his children don't have to be perfect, but in their spirits they should reflect that, 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 uh, that desire to live for God. They should have a godly and a non-rebellious attitude toward the things of God and, and really reflect that godly and nurturing home environment. But then I think, I think lastly, and um, you know, I, I know that this is specifically applied to a deacon's wife, but, but this phrase, faithful in all things, really sums up the position of a deacon, right? Obviously, all of those are, are requirements, you know, uh, but that really sums up all the qualifications of a, both a deacon and his wife. And I know in, in this context, it was given specifically to the deacon's wives, but, but they should be solid Christians. And I've, you know, I hear people all the time say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a deacon at my church, or I used to be a deacon at my church. And I kind of step back and I say, what was the pastor looking at when he was looking at the qualifications and you? And, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm saying this is such a, such a, a uh, important position, and the qualifications are so stringent. I find out that, you know, oh, yeah, I'm a deacon. Yeah, I don't go that often. You know, I don't go to church that often, but I'm a deacon there, you know. Uh, that's, that's not, I mean, that, that should never be said. You ought to be faithful in everything, right? If, if anybody's going to be at church when the doors are open, it ought to be the deacon and his wife and, and their family, Right? Uh, and so that means Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, special services. I mean, does that put a, a strain? Yes, it does. But guess what? I'm going to be here at every one of those services, and it puts a strain on me to be at everything too, right? Uh, but it's important. It's important for me to be here. Now, who would, who would preach if I wasn't, right? Uh, the church is still going to go on if the deacon wasn't there. But it's, it's important. It's an important position. It's an important thing to do to be faithful. And, and honestly, then, to add to that, a deacon ought to be a faithful soul winner as well. They'll be doing everything they can to not just get people to church, but to get people to Christ. So turn over to 1 Timothy chapter, well, you're already in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to look at this as we close, because I, I want to just kind of summarize everything that I've said here, um, and just, just give you a, a uh, maybe a deacon's responsibility in a nutshell, and, and again, um, when the time comes, and I, and I think it'll probably be this year that we uh, try to appoint some deacons in our church, uh, we'll probably take a little bit more time to talk about that. 
um, and look at the roles of deacons and everything else. And, and again, it's not necessarily something that the entire church needs to know. It's, it's the deacons that need to know that because they're going to be the ones that are doing that job. But the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant, right? It's a, it's, it's a job or a work. It says there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, for they that have used the office of the deacon. It's not a position to be occupied. It's a job to be filled, right? Deacons, who are servants, are chosen by the local church to help, the, to help alleviate the heavy drain on the pastor's time and, and uh, allow him to uh, spend the necessary time in prayer and preparation in ministering the Word of God. In fact, keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3 because I want to come right back to it and end with this. But you go back to Acts chapter 6 and, and you see exactly what they, what they were talking about here. Uh, verse number four, Acts chapter six and verse number four. The apostles there speaking, Paul in particular, we need these men to help. We need men to serve tables. We need men to, do the, to take care of the widows and to do the daily ministration and all that stuff. Why? Because verse four, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, right? That is my primary responsibility, prayer and the ministry of the word. And the ministration, everything else that has to happen on the outside of that is taken care of by other people. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this so I can say, you know what, I'm stopping everything else. You guys take care of it. I'm going to study my message. I'm, I'm not saying that. But it's, it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of just ministration, administration type stuff. And so deacons mainly are there to help the pastors with the kind of work that's necessary to get done, but not necessarily necessary for the pastor to have to do himself. In other words, they help free the pastor up to spend his time doing what nobody can do for him, and that is prayer and the ministry of the word. So important. The pastor is the leader of the church. The deacon is the servant of the church. That's, that's, the, that's the, the function that God designates to those two offices. So back over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The pastor ministers in the spiritual things. The deacons minister in the temporal things, right? And we're given that, that kind of distinction. Widows serve tables. Deacons are to be under the leadership and the direction of the pastor. A deacon is a pastor's helper. And I, I, I just baffled so many times when I hear, you know, the deacons decided that the church is going to do this. What do you mean the deacons decide? Who, the deacons are not a, a board that runs the church. The deacon's responsibility is to help the pastor do what the pastor feels God wants them to do for the church. And that's it. That's it. In a lot of churches, those roles are reversed at the expense of the unity of the church. And the deacons run the church and the pastor and the boards and all of this other stuff, and it should be the exact opposite of that. No church is going to be operating smoothly when a deacon or deacons or deacons' wives are in control. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. We're heading toward appointing deacons for our church. The high qualification for the deacons points to the fact that testimony counts, right? People closely observe church leadership, and they should. They're rarely going to rise to a higher level of spiritual maturity than the leadership of the church. This church will only go as far spiritually as I'm willing to go myself, right? 
And the church is only going to go as far spiritually as the deacons who are there in those positions of leadership are willing to go themselves. That's why it's so important that our deacons, when we appoint them, when we have deacons, are the example to the church and fit the qualifications that a deacon is supposed to have. They are the examples to the rest of the church. And I've said this many times before. If I expect you to jump a foot, I've got to jump three feet. And the same is true for the deacons when we have them. It's, it, deacons are no different in the expectation of their testimony. Nobody's reached a plateau of perfection. And in this life, we never will. We're never, we, we ought to be trying to be perfect. We ought to be trying to be as holy as God is holy. But we're never going to reach that position. But deacons should maintain a blameless testimony and an obvious heart for growth and grace. And that's the same thing that's expected out of the pastor as well. When we look at the, at the, at the, the basically the same thing that we did tonight as it applies to the pastor uh, when we get back together next week. But what a, what a tremendous responsibility, what a tremendous honor uh, it is to be able to be a deacon. But uh, it comes with, with a, a high price, if you will, and a, a great responsibility to fit these qualifications and to be blameless and to, uh, to, lead, to, to help lead the church by example as we follow Christ and the pastor as he follows Christ. And what a, what a tremendous thing it's going to be when, we're, when we do appoint deacons. But a lot there and a, and a lot of things that we, uh, that we could say more about what the deacons do, but that's, uh, that's an overview, and hopefully it's a help to us tonight. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you.